0: I'm Kathy with a C.
1: And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Before we start today's podcast, we want to remind you guys, and we said it at the end of the last podcast, so it goes first here, (laughs) but we wanted to remind you we're going to Chattanooga. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be there March 3rd through March 5th at Literary Inks, and that's I-N-K, Convention. This is a convention for people who love tattoos and love Harry Potter.
2: We're super excited. Jennifer Edge with Mainline Tattoo, who is the creator and host of this extravaganza, Mm -hmm. invited us to do this. We'll be doing sessions each day of the convention. On Friday and Saturday, we're going to do an hour-long question and answer. Alcohol may be involved. And then on Sunday, we're going to record a one-hour podcast. And you'll learn how much we swear during the podcast. Exactly.
1: And we're very excited to see you. And frankly, I'm a little nervous, so I hope I don't, you know, overeat excessively leading up to the show, (laughs) (laughs) which may or may not happen. I don't know.
2: We've never done this before. This is our very first convention.
1: Exactly. So we're
2: super excited. We hope you can make it. We've already heard from some of you. But again, March 3rd through 5th, Chattanooga, Tennessee.
1: And go to Jennifer's website. What is it, Kath?
2: It's literaryink.co. Get tickets
1: on the website. Hope to see you there. Today's destination is Fort Worth, Texas. The city was established in 1849 as an army outpost on a bluff overlooking the Trinity River. Fort Worth has historically been a center of the cattle trade and still embraces its western heritage, traditional architecture, and design. The city is notable for several things. The Fort Worth Southwestern Exposition and Livestock Show is the longest-running rodeo in the country, first having taken place in 1896. Fort Worth was also a stop on the famous Chisholm Trail, which was used for cattle transport, earning the city the nickname of Cowtown. The city was also the last place John F. Kennedy gave a public speech before his assassination. Although it had gritty roots, Fort Worth developed into a thriving modern city, with a reputation for arts, culture, food, and outdoor activities. Fort Worth's upscale neighborhood of River Crest is an enclave of old money that is predictably insulated from violent crime. The multi-million dollar homes have personal security systems, guard dogs, and tall security fences to keep the residents safe. But in 1992, Rivercrest residents learned that all the money in the world won't keep you safe if somebody wants you dead.
2: At 3.42 a.m. on March 13, 1992, 48-year-old Jack Koslow stumbled to his neighbor's house pleading for help. His neighbor opened the door to find Jack dazed and desperate, wearing only his boxers, covered in blood. As Jack went into the house, he fell on the floor and was saying over and over, My wife, my wife's over there. Somebody get my wife. I think she might be dead. Jack was distraught and told his neighbors that he and Karen had been beaten and stabbed. He said he heard something and woke up and there was more than one intruder. But because it was dark, he could not see them clearly. The neighbor called 911 on Jack's behalf and explained what Jack had told him. Police and paramedics responded to the neighbor's house and Jack insisted that they go to his wife, telling them that she was in the master bedroom. As Jack was being put into the ambulance to go to the hospital, Fort Worth police officers went into his home. The scene in the master bedroom was gruesome and hard for even these seasoned police officers to take in. There was blood splatter on all four walls. 40-year-old Karen Coslow, Jack's wife, was face down on the floor at the foot of their bed, lying in a pool of blood. When officers turned her over, it was clear she was dead, with a deep gash to her throat.
1: Jack Koslow had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and eventually wound up in the banking industry. With his first wife, Paula, Jack adopted a little girl named Christy who was born on Valentine's Day in 1975. The two separated in 1982 when Christie was only seven and went through an acrimonious divorce with money being an ongoing issue. Christie lived primarily with her mother, Paula. Jack worked his way up the ladder to become a vice president of a major bank where in the early 1980s, he met Karen, who was enjoying a successful career in commercial banking. The two eventually married. Shortly after that, Karen quit her job and focused more fully on volunteering and charity work, something that she had always been involved with. In 1990, Jack was laid off with a healthy severance when his bank was bought out, and he was in the beginning stages of buying a business that sold ceiling fans. Jack and Karen lived in a nearly 4,000-square-foot brick home in the ritzy Fort Worth neighborhood of River Crest, just a block from the country club. The neighborhood was an enclave of old money and privilege and spotted with beautiful mansions. Christy lived with her mother a half mile away in a nice neighborhood, but not comparable to her father's.
2: I also read somewhere, Kath, that Rivercrest was also home to a few billionaires. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. They won't return my calls, I don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So strange. I know.
2: As homicide detectives combed the scene, they noticed that Karen's top had bloody handprints on the back, as though someone with blood on their hands had tried to move her or turn her over. Her throat was cut, and there was a buck knife with an ornate handle lying nearby, covered in blood. The hallway closet had been ransacked, and several drawers were pulled out. It was clear that somebody had been searching for something, but as investigators looked around, they saw a lot of valuables that had been left behind, like jewelry and weapons things that were easy to take and go. Police also discovered that the back gate of the home, which was actually an eight-foot wooden privacy fence that abutted an alley, had been pried from the inside with some type of instrument that left marks in the wood. There was also a small piece of latex glove stuck to the fence. The Kozlo's back door also had been pried open with the same type of object, which left marks in the door. Journalists Kathy Sanders and Jack Douglas Jr. of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported that detectives found shoe prints on the top of an air conditioning unit near the home's backyard privacy fence. What appeared to be skid marks coming down the inside of the privacy fence were also found, indicating somebody had climbed over. The Coslow's bedroom door was also forced open, with detectives finding a shoe print on the door. A bullet hole from a 38-caliber gun was found in the bedroom's hardwood floor. Four bullets from a thirty-eight caliber handgun were found near Karen's body, and two similar bullets were found later in the alley behind the Coslow's home. And Kath, what was interesting is these weren't shell casings. These were actual bullets that had not been fired.
1: Later on the afternoon of the murder, detectives spoke with Jack from his hospital bed. Jack told him that he and Karen had gone to dinner, and he was in bed by 10 p.m. with Karen following later. He said he was awakened by a noise, which he believed was his house alarm, quickly followed by a crash and the sound of footsteps running upstairs.
2: So, Kath, talking about footsteps running upstairs, when I used to work in Washington, D.C., when I was working for Congress, Mm -hmm. some friends and I went to Italy over Thanksgiving, as one would do. Right. (laughs) Fancy lady. (laughs) So even though this is around 2000, 2002, you still weren't using the internet to book hotel rooms before you got to a city in Europe. Wait, what? Are you sure? Well, yeah, because remember when I lived in Germany in 2000.
1: Oh, it was 2000 you lived in Germany. It
2: was. And so really, you weren't doing it that way still. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, I'm guessing it probably picked up. It could have been people who were more adept than I was. But back then, people were honestly just starting to use cell phones and you couldn't text. Or if you did, it was like ABC to get like... Oh, totally. Yeah. Texting was a nightmare. So it doesn't sound like that long ago, but in terms of technology, it was leaps and bounds. That's true. So we get to Rome. There's four of us. All four women. We're about the same age. And we asked the cab driver to take us to a hotel. You're never supposed to do that. Do
1: you know that? I did not know that. Yeah,
2: we didn't know that either at the time. (laughs) But apparently there were hotels that would pay cab drivers to take people to their hotels. They weren't always on the up and up. Anyway, so we're at this hotel. It was called... (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting. The Hotel Stella Hollywood. Oh, really? That's awesome.
1: (laughs) That's awesome.
2: So we get there. It's not a total dump. It really wasn't. It was probably a two star hotel. But the people who were there, the woman behind the desk and the other people working there kind of sketchy. So we're hungry. We decide to go out for dinner. We leave one person behind because she's super sick, which you're not supposed to do. But we had her, you know, boarding up doors, whatever. We go out into the neighborhood to walk around and find some great place to eat. Yeah, this was their red light district. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we hurry up and get our food. We go back to the hotel. We get into the hotel. We're sitting there. And all of a sudden we hear the of people running up the stairs, like heavy booted people running up the stairs. Why? It oh was my a raid. God.
1: Did, it was a raid. Oh, I, th- <laughs> I thought you were going to say they thought you were workers. <laughs> no, well, the people in the hotel were. So they came to our door. Oh, my gosh. But yeah. So that when he
2: talked about like hearing the footsteps running up, like I still have flashbacks about that because you're in a hotel. We didn't speak Italian. You don't know how much help you're going to get from the embassy. Can you get to the embassy? And we were supposed to be there for three days and we just wanted to leave the next day. Oh, my gosh. So the next day we're arguing with and we finally get the passport back because we only had to leave one of them. And we take off for the train station and we're just running. We're not in a cab. We know where it is. We're just running. And we're literally in a full out sprint. As we get there, a Mercedes with two of the people we'd seen at the hotel comes screeching up. And when they see us at the train station, they drive on back.
1: What the hell was that about?
2: I don't know. I have to assume it was about us. That's super creepy. It was super creepy. That's my going up the stairs.
1: Okay, so we're not promising we're not going to tell you another story. But anyway, we're (laughs) going to go back to Jack. So he hears a crash and the sound of footsteps running up his stairs. Now he and his wife are on the second floor in their master bedroom. He tries to get a shotgun from the closet, but his bedroom door is kicked in and he and his wife, Karen, were ordered to lay on the floor. Jack told police investigators that both men had guns and flashlights and began beating them with heavy objects. He was kicked and beaten into unconsciousness. At some point, he woke up to find himself covered in blood. The intruders were gone at this point. He tells investigators that he tried to wake up Karen, then tried to dial 911, but because there was so much blood in his eyes, he could not see. So that's when he staggers to the neighbor's house and wakes them up. So detectives could not figure out what the attackers were looking for in the closet, nor could they figure out why Jack was not dead. Although Jack clearly suffered serious cuts and stab wounds, including to his throat, and he was obviously beaten with a blunt object, His wounds were not as deep or as severe as Karen's. Detectives wondered if it were really impossible for him to call 911 from his own home. Couldn't he just wipe the blood away and see the buttons? Detectives also noticed in the hospital while they were talking to him that Jack's hands were swollen with injuries that looked like bite marks, and he had no explanation as to how this happened.
2: Two days after the attack, in an article in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram by Jack Douglas Jr. and Stephanie Gamage, Fort Worth Police Chief Thomas Wyndham said that no suspects had been ruled out and declined to say whether Jack Coslow was the focus of the investigation. He said they had some information they were working on and he was not going to comment on what they were looking into or not looking into. At this point, Jack Coslow remained in the hospital. Barry Schlachter and Indira Lakshmanen of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported that five days after Karen Koslow was murdered, Jack's daughter Christy, who was now 17 years old, began answering reporters' questions while outside of her father's home. She told reporters that her father was in stable condition at the Harris Methodist Fort Worth Hospital. She said her father was happy to see her, but that he was heavily sedated and could barely talk. In response to reporters' questions, Christy explained that her mother, Paula, and her father, Jack, were divorced when Christy was seven. She also said she did not know why anyone would want to hurt Karen or her father. She said she and Karen were as close as a stepdaughter and stepmother could be. She rejected the speculation that her father was involved in the murder, saying he really did care for Karen and they seemed like your typical happy couple. In her conversations with the reporters, Christy had nothing but praise for Karen and Jack. According to the article, the night after Karen Kozla was killed, Christy ran into a group of friends at Benedict's restaurant. She told them, I'm sad it happened. God rest her soul. But I didn't
1: like her. So so that whole statement about as close as a girl and her stepmother could be, maybe that was a little bit... It's a qualifier.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs>
1: it all depends.
2: It's like, well, you know. <laughs> depends on what you're gauging it by. Exactly.
1: <laughs> you sound super close. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> Christy said the killers must have been professionals because they set it up perfectly for it to be blamed on her father. Within days of the murder, Christy's mother, Paula, was asked to go to the police station for an interview. Christy and her boyfriend of four months, 19-year-old Brian Salter, accompanied Paula to the police station to be questioned. In her interview, Paula acknowledged to the investigators that her relationship with Jack had not been smooth and that she was not close to Karen. She also echoed the sentiments of her daughter Christy, saying that she had no idea who could have done such a thing. When asked if Jack could have done such a thing, Paula said no, she did not think he could. So, at this point now, Kath, Jack was still in the hospital. And he had a uniformed officer stationed outside of his room as a courtesy because his family had concerns that whoever it was who killed Karen and attempted to kill Jack might try to kill Jack again. And it seemed like the Fort Worth police were more than willing to provide security.
1: And it's certainly a good place to eavesdrop. You're
2: right. It's a perfect place to see how his family members are reacting to him.
1: Four days after his attack, Jack left the hospital to attend his wife's funeral at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. He had bandages on his neck and the back of his head was shaved, revealing numerous cuts that had been stitched. Now, Kath, some of the funeral goers I read in the newspaper were really annoyed when they saw him. They had already tried and convicted him, essentially. Like, they believed, hey, this was the guy. There's no other reasonable explanation. And how dare he show himself at this? Exactly. And he was a pallbearer.
2: Wow. Yeah. I've never heard of a husband being a pallbearer. Neither
1: have I. But yes, he was a pallbearer. Interesting. According to her obituary, Karen was survived by Jack, her mother, her brother, sister, grandmother, and various extended family members. Karen was born in Fort Worth and graduated from the University of Texas, eventually receiving an MBA from Southern Methodist University. She was a former vice president for Texas American Bank, and Karen was affiliated with many civic and charitable organizations. Detectives had unanswered questions about the crime scene and felt Jack's explanation was incomplete. So they began their investigation looking for motive. What did he have to gain? detectives quickly discovered that although Jack had a healthy income, it was Karen who really had all the money. She was an oil heiress and from a long line of oil tycoons. When she was younger, her uncle set up a $4 million trust fund for her.
2: And if you think about the fact that she's 40, how long has that money been gaining interest?
1: Trust me, I thought about that when I read that. I was like,
2: dang, nice.
1: But also she spends a lot on charity,
2: which is the perfect way to spend it.
1: Yeah. When I was doing research for this, I went and looked up her name in newspapers prior to her murder. And every time she was in the newspaper, it was typically in the society column for a charity event or a donation or she's spearheading the, you know, um,
2: she's spearheading different galas
1: and fundraising events. Exactly. For the hospital, for arts, for, you know, museums. So she was known to be very charitable with her money.
2: Investigators continued scrutinizing Jack's version of events. Now, remember, Jack said the security alarm had awakened him when the intruders broke in, but it was reported in the previously mentioned article by Jack Douglas Jr. and Stephanie Gamage, but none of the neighbors reported hearing the alarm. According to the article... Gary Dillon, who was the co owner of Universal Security Alarms, said there was no indication that an alarm at the Koslow home sent a signal to the company's control panel at the time of the murder. After inspecting the home security system, the alarm showed no evidence of being tampered with on the night of the murder. The alarm was functioning perfectly when it was tested by the company a few days after Karen Koslow was killed. According to Gary, the alarm has a memory bank that could reveal whether it was activated. However, after inspecting the alarm the day following the murder, he declined to say whether it appeared that the system was on or whether it had been triggered when Karen Coslow was murdered. It was also reported by an anonymous source that Karen confided to friends that Jack and Karen had problems and were seeing a marriage therapist. According to a March 25, 1992 article in the Fort Worth Star Telegram by Jack Douglas Jr., a subpoena was issued for the records of the family therapist who counseled Jack and Karen Coslow. Citing doctor-patient confidentiality, therapist Patrick O'Malley said at the time that he may resist the investigator's efforts to obtain the records. O'Malley was a psychotherapist who specialized in marriage and family counseling. O'Malley said he could not turn over those records without providing information about Jack's 17-year-old daughter, Christy, because they were counseled as a family rather than individuals. O'Malley said he would try to get releases from Jack and Christy as well as from Karen's estate before he turned over the records. Otherwise, he would wait for a court order from a judge. O'Malley said, quote, he was in a pickle and his hands were tied. The judge could untie them or the family could untie them. End quote.
1: I like how you quote that <laughs> he was in a pickle because you want to make sure the listeners don't think that you say pickle.
2: That's exactly it. I love pickles. I usually don't use it to describe a situation. Somebody Every finds so often in. I use
1: in a pickle. OK. Yeah.
2: Christy Coslow, who stopped seeing O'Malley about two years prior, declined to sign a release.
1: You know, Kath, I read that the Coslos had seen a therapist for like five years. Now, it wasn't as though therapy was taboo in 1992, but it wasn't as people didn't talk about it as much as they do now. Right? You know, it's a very common thing. Anyway, so they had seen a therapist for five years and this anonymous family member was like, hey... It was just basic marital stuff. And it involved Christy as well when she was going through teenage problems with boys or behavior or whatever. It makes sense. And exactly. Especially with Karen being a stepmother. Oh, 100%. So Christy had not gone to this guy in a couple of years, but I could see why she would not want the information revealed. And frankly, she's 17 years old. Yeah,
2: it would have been 15 the last time she talked to him. Right,
1: But I don't think even at the age of 17, she had the authority to sign a contract revoking that privilege. Her mother probably would have had to sign an authorization with her.
2: Probably. But I'm glad that her mom didn't and that Christy knew she didn't want that out. That stuff gets damaging.
1: Oh, totally. Because it would have all been reported on. Everyone at school would have heard. It would have wound up in a search warrant. It would have been published in the newspapers. It would have been been recited on podcasts. (laughs) 100 (laughs) percent. According to journalist John Douglas Jr. and Stephanie Gamage, matters were further complicated because the Tarrant County Medical Examiner, Dr. Nizam Perwani, released his autopsy findings that Karen suffered a crush injury to her larynx due to blunt force trauma of the neck. And after that, her throat was slashed to the point of near decapitation. Police Chief Thomas Wyndham was pissed. So Kathy, he, I can imagine. Yeah, he's mad because he knows that you, you, you always got to hold something back, some type of physically objective, verifiable injury or piece of evidence so that when you're examining people, when you're interviewing people, when you're polygraphing people, you have that card in your pocket and you're hoping they slip up. So basically, this is what cracked me up. So Chief Windham was irritated, obviously, at the medical examiner. And this is a quote. I was just very miffed about Dr. Perwani releasing information about one of our murder investigations, particularly one that is of the whodunit variety. So he was pissed at the medical examiner and the medical examiner. He comes clapped
2: up. back. <laughs>
1: yeah, the medical examiner <laughs> clapped back and he told everybody that he disagreed with the police chief and the cause of death was part of the public record. After the funeral, Jack Coslow stopped going out in public. He still cooperated with the police, but nobody saw him and he stayed far away from any of the reporters. According to homicide detective Kurt Brannon, who was a primary player in the homicide investigation, an arrest warrant was actually prepared for Jack Koslow, but it was never executed. As it turns out, detectives received a surprise phone call that changed everything. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
2: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
1: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
2: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
1: Or crazy. A little <laughs> bit. So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash KillerD and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash KillerD.
2: On March 24th, 1992, 12 days after the murder, Detective Brannon received a phone call from a man who said he knew who the killer was. He gave his location and Detective Brannon beat feet to go meet him. The caller was 20-year-old Paul Carrillo and he did not disappoint. He gave Detective Brannon items the killer had asked him to dispose of. An 18-inch metal crowbar, a bulletproof vest bloody clothes, and Jack Coslow's wallet containing his ID and business cards. Paul Carrillo told detectives that his best friend, Jeffrey Dillingham, gave him the items and asked Paul to help him cover up the murder. Dillingham told Paul that he and Brian Salter, remember this is Christy Coslow's boyfriend of four months, committed the murders together. As you can imagine, Kath, detectives did not see this bombshell coming. And they immediately got arrest warrants for both Jeffrey Dillingham and Brian Salter. Now, by all accounts, Jeffrey Dillingham was from a solid upper middle class family. He was a responsible guy. He had worked two management level jobs, both at a miniature golf course and blockbuster, which for a 19 year old says a lot. Mm -hmm. He also was an honor student in high school and had no criminal record. Now, Brian Salter lived a more middle class existence. He was also an honor student in high school, but he had prior contact with law enforcement, which you and I talked about. We think it was actually a minor offense because we could not actually figure out what it was. I could not remember.
1: exactly. It was like a, like something stupid and small. Right. Like whatever it was, it was like fairly insignificant. It was like shoplifting. I just can't remember what it was. Yeah.
2: And so this didn't make sense to detectives. These boys did not have a background that you would necessarily attribute
1: to stone cold killers. Totally. One of the things I want to say, like the miniature golf course. I read that Dillingham was fired from this miniature golf course. He was an assistant manager there. And I believe he did this right out of high school. They said he was on his car phone too much.
2: <laughs> Which means he was in the parking lot yeah, on he, his Yeah, he, he was on
1: a seven pound phone.
2: Attached to his
1: console <laughs> right. in the car. Exactly. I was cracking up. And they also thought he was running a business on the side. And so it was taken away from the putt-putt miniature golf. And then when I saw Blockbuster, of course, it totally like triggered memories when my kids were little. Now, remember, my husband was working nights at this time. Right. I referred to this as the dark days. And, you know, there was five. My husband worked nights, blah, 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 blah. So on Friday, my kids were always jacked up. All right, let's go to Blockbuster. I'd get a video for myself and I would get one video for them watching five children negotiate what video to get. It's like, no wonder my kids have good oral argument skills. So anyway, so they would negotiate, negotiate. There was promises. I'll let you take my pillow tonight. I'll read you this book tonight. And I would just like sit back and watch and they would eventually come to a movie. And then I would get in line at Blockbuster. And of course, it's like one of those windy lines on each side of the line is like candy, candy. yeah." Yeah. So trying to like get through that line without purchasing candy was like, okay, mom, mom, I'm going to mow the lawn and I'm going to do the dishes and I'm going to blah, 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 whatever. Anyway, so
2: I have a question. You said you got a movie for yourself. Yes. I didn't realize it had an adult section.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, someone thinks she's so funny. (laughs) Did I let
2: a secret slip?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so when I saw Blockbuster, I was like, what? I can't decide if the memories are traumatic or great. You know,
2: <laughs> they were traumatic at the time and probably totally. like ten years after and now they're great. Exactly. Now, back to the arrests. Right. After Jeffrey Dillingham was arrested at Blockbuster, Brian Salter was arrested at his home. Both men were taken to the Fort Worth Police Department, placed in separate rooms, read their Miranda rights, and they started singing like canaries. The police, Kath, were really surprised how quickly Jeffrey Dillingham told them everything in an interview that was reported to have lasted only 37 minutes.
1: Kath, I read 7 million newspaper articles about that case, and that was a running theme. How detectives were quoted as saying, we were surprised at how quickly he started answering our questions. Wow.
2: Yeah. Both men confessed to using the crowbar to break into the residence, And both said that Dillingham used the crowbar as a weapon to beat the Coslows, but both denied slicing Karen's throat. They also both agreed that Salter's gun accidentally discharged into the floor of the bedroom. Remember, we talked about there being a bullet hole in the hardwood. Mm -hmm. Now, once the interviews were complete, detectives prepared to arrest a third suspect.
1: According to Star-Telegram journalist Hollis Weiner, on March 26, 1992, neighbors witnessed what they thought was a kidnapping. A man watched in alarm as Christy Koslow's car came to a stop at a stop sign about a block from her home. She was suddenly boxed in by a Mercedes 560 SEL and a Chrysler, both of which had been parked at the curb since the day prior. Christy was pulled out of her vehicle and put into the Mercedes and then the Mercedes sped away. Okay,
2: would you not be freaking the F out if you saw this?
1: Completely, completely.
2: Now, would you have tried to like stop it in some way?
1: Dude, I would have busted a cap into that vehicle.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And by that, she means like the top of a a soda. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, so this guy's freaked out, right? So he calls the cops immediately and they're like, we know, sir, we've already received that call. Short time later, patrol cars pull up, as does a tow truck, followed by a crime scene van. And now all the neighbors realize this was no kidnapping. It was a police stakeout and the arrest of Christy Koslow. According to a transcript I found online, Christy was interviewed by Detective LaRue of the Homicide Division. She told Detective LaRue that she and Brian Salter, whom she had known for a long time but only recently started dating, joked about robbing her father and stepmother because she did not feel her dad loved her or gave her enough attention. So Christy told Detective LaRue it was just a joke and that she said it to some of her friends in the past as well. She said a couple months prior to the murders, she discussed maybe robbery with Brian Salter, but she did not seriously believe that anything would actually happen. She did admit to Detective LaRue that she sketched out a floor plan of the Coslow home, but did not think any crime would actually come to fruition. She said she never discussed any crime with Jeffrey Dillingham. Christy also told Detective LaRue that she provided the alarm code, but insisted that she would not want anyone hurt and did not believe that her father and stepmother would be home. So ultimately, Detective Brannon comes into the picture, and Detective Brannon was the guy who picked up all of this evidence from Paul Carrillo. And so he was kind of heading up the investigation. So Detective Brannon reads Christy her Miranda rights and questions her about her denial in the conspiracy of the crime. Now, this guy was smart, Kath. When you read the transcript, he immediately began going through how she felt about her father and Karen's marriage and her resentment toward Karen. And I think that she believed that Karen was the impetus behind the divorce, although it doesn't specifically say that.
2: Right. We did not see anything that verified that. Correct. As a seven-year-old, though, you could see that.
1: Oh, 100%. So this detective immediately starts having Christy acknowledge her hurt, which was such an excellent tactic because she then, in a very short time, starts making these admissions. Like she says, I didn't mean for it to happen the way it did. And he's like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, I thought it would be quick. I didn't want them to suffer. She said she asked Brian to help her do this. And after a while, she actually started pushing the idea on him. And then, you know, the way she tells it, well, we pushed the idea on each other.
2: Well, and she was described as having
1: a very forceful personality. Personality, Exactly. So she said she wanted this because her mom was continually upset and she thought she would inherit money that would help her mother. She said her mother had had cancer and had all these bills and struggled with child support related legal fees. So anytime there was an issue with child support or maybe she needed to increase it or whatever, she'd have to hire an expensive lawyer and she would complain about the legal fees. Anyway, so Christy tells Detective Brannon that she told Brian Salter and Jeffrey Dillingham that she thought Karen had 10 to 15 million dollars and she thought she would inherit a portion if her father died.
2: So through the course of these three confessions, Brian Salter, Jeffrey Dillingham, and Christy Coslow, it was revealed that Christy promised Dillingham and Salter $500,000 upon Karen and Jack's deaths and another $500,000 upon receipt of the inheritance. Christy, as we said earlier, gave them gate codes and a map of the house. Salter had a backpack that had two guns he took from his parents without their knowledge as well as a crowbar. So, Kath, the two men parked two blocks from the Coslow residence Mm -hmm. and they reportedly debated about whether or not they should actually go through with the plan.
1: Kath, I read that and I read that they were there for like a half hour. Yeah. Debating.
2: After all this back and forth, Dillingham jumped over the security fence and into the Coslow's backyard. Wearing latex gloves, Dillingham pried open the back door into the house and Salter immediately punched in the alarm code he'd been given by Christie to turn off the alarm. Dillingham ran up the stairs and into the master bedroom to find Jack Coslow attempting to load a shotgun. Karen and Jack were ordered to the floor. As Dillingham began beating the Coslows, Salter began rummaging for money. Christy had told Salter that her father kept thousands of dollars in cash in the house for emergency situations. Salter found a knife that belonged to Jack Coslow and cut Karen's and Jack's throats. At some point, Salter's gun accidentally discharged and Dillingham and Salter got scared and left. Detectives later theorized that the accidental discharge actually saved Jack's life. After all was said and done, Dillingham and Salter walked out of the house with $120 in cash from a wallet and a wristwatch worth $1,600.
1: That's so sad. Yeah. One of the things I want to revisit right now is the marks on the backs of Jack's swollen hands that detectives thought looked like bite marks. Right. That was never explained in anything that I read. But Kathy and I have a theory. Because we do know he was beaten with a crowbar. Right. And so we are assuming they were defensive it was, wounds, but it was probably being swung with the bent end hitting his hand. Right. So that's the only thing I could think of. Also, the alarm. Journalists made a Big deal about the fact that this alarm company had said no alarm was reported to us, but Jack had said it was the alarm that woke me up. And so it wasn't perfectly clarified, but what we think happened was if you guys have a home alarm, you know that when you come into your home and the alarm is engaged, it beeps and there's a little flashing red light and you can punch in your code. We are assuming that that was the sound that woke Jack up. So we now know that the three of them did it for money. And in a cruel twist of irony, Christy Coslow, even if her father and stepmother had died naturally never stood to inherit a single penny of Karen's money.
2: It's like the Taylor Swift song. So this is a shout out to my niece. (laughs) Who adores Taylor Swift. She does. And she would kill me if I didn't know this. There's a song that Taylor Swift sings called Antihero. And all of you know it. You've all heard it because the chorus of it is, It's me. Hi, I'm the
1: problem. It's me. (laughs) Kathy's a much better singer than I am. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) For the record, she's had nothing to drink.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a much better singer when I've had more to drink. And if you go with us to Chattanooga, we can all sing together in the bar. That's true. So there's a verse in this song that says, and I'm not singing this, sorry. (laughs) Well, sorry to Kathy, but the rest of you, you're welcome. It says, I have this dream. My daughter-in-law kills me for the money. She thinks I left them in the will. The family gathers round and reads it. And then someone screams out. She's laughing up at us from hell. Wow. So basically, they all thought she was going to like the daughter-in-law killed her for the money. No money was there. That is
1: completely on point. Yes. Yeah. So what we find out is that Karen Koslow's will was specifically crafted to exclude Christy. In an Associated Press article published after Christie's arrest, the terms of the will were disclosed in mid-August 1992, so five months after the murder, when the will was filed in the Tarrant County Probate Court. Although Karen Coslow had no children of her own, she said in a will that was signed fewer than two years before she died that beneficiaries could include, quote, my natural children, but shall not include stepchildren. Wow, exactly. I think she
2: agreed that she and her stepdaughter were as close as a stepdaughter and stepmother could be. That's exactly
1: right. It's touche. So Karen's will stipulated that Jack could receive five hundred thousand dollars from her trust, but he could not receive any distributions from the trust until after he was released from any financial obligations to his daughter Christy, and I believe it also stipulated Christy's eighteenth birthday. And this whole fiasco, like with these three teenagers thinking they're going to like outsmart things. I mean, maybe this is what happens when teenagers think they're wills and trust attorneys. I don't know.
2: Jeffrey Dillingham was offered life in prison in exchange for testimony against the others. However, he turned it down and pled not guilty. He went to trial in Wichita, Texas, after the court granted a change of venue. Prosecutors opened with the frantic 911 call from the neighbor where Jeffrey went after he was attacked. Detectives were called to the stand to lay the foundation for Dillingham's confession, which was played for the jury. His guilt, Cath, as you can imagine, was essentially sealed at that point. For sure. Defense attorneys did not call any witnesses, but rather relied simply on cross-examining the witnesses that the prosecution called.
1: You know, Kath, I didn't read anything as to why he just didn't take a deal. Yeah, I didn't either. You know, I don't know if it was him not wanting to testify against his friends. I have no idea. But the deck was stacked against him and he still went to trial. Right. He wept nonstop through his trial. His defense attorney's sole
2: goal was to keep him from being executed. They told jurors that he was from a good family, did not have an antisocial personality disorder, and was not a future danger. One of the defense attorneys told jurors, quote, Jeff still is a human being. Jeff is not a trophy for the prosecution to go back to Fort Worth and display prominently on their wall, end quote. The defense also stressed the fact that Jeffrey Dillingham had no prior criminal record. To that, the prosecutor responded, It might have been Dillingham's first offense, but he sure climbed up the high dive and into the deep end. It was a chilling crime. There were no mitigating factors of age or mental health, and the fact that the crime was premeditated weighed heavily against him. On August 11, 1993, 17 months after Karen Koslow was killed, a sobbing Jeffrey Dillingham listened to the judge pronounce his penalty, death by lethal injection.
1: Now, Kath, I read in the newspapers that his parents and friends, and he had a ton of friends and family supporting him. And a fiancé. Oh, I forgot about that. And they just collapsed and were crying hysterically.
2: Unsurprisingly, Kath, about a month after Jeffrey Dillingham was convicted and sentenced to death, Brian Salter accepted a plea deal of life in prison with the possibility of parole in 35 years and agreed to testify against his former girlfriend, Christy Koslow.
1: I'm sure he was like, yes, immediately. Oh, he must have freaked. Give me the papers, I'll sign them. Right. I don't care what it says. After seeing what the jury did for this guy who had no criminal record. Right. So Christy Koslow's case went to trial in May of 1994. Defense attorneys pointed out that at no time were these three people together in one place making a plan. In Dillingham's statement to the police, he told them that he never met Christie before the crime. All communications went through Brian Salter. So the defense position was that Christie was not an actual conspirator, but rather a sad, angry young lady who made a suggestion about robbery without really believing it would happen. Things got carried away through no fault of hers, but rather the greed of Jeffrey Dillingham. Basically, The defense was like, hey, she suggested it and they took the ball and ran with it because they wanted the money. Brian Salter testified against her, detailing the promise of riches and the brutality of the crimes. He also admitted to being the one who used the hunting knife on Karen and Jack. Detectives laid the foundation for Christie's confession and the jurors heard the interviews that she gave to homicide detectives LaRue and Brannon. The most riveting witness at her trial was her own father, Jack Coslow. Jack took the stand as a prosecution witness and walked the jury through the gruesome details of his experience. He and his wife were made to lie down on the bedroom floor and were mercilessly beaten and stabbed. Jack testified that he knew he was a suspect before his daughter was arrested and that he and his daughter were not close anymore and did not see much of each other. He characterized Christy as a problem child and a troubled teen. He said that Christy and his wife Karen were completely estranged from one another. According to Jack, two weeks before the murder, Christie stopped by unexpectedly at his house. Naturally, he was surprised to see her. She told him that she just wanted to stop by and give him a kiss. Talk about the kiss of Judas. I mean, for real. That's a great way to characterize it. Oh my gosh. At her trial, Jack testified that he heard intruders breaking the door and heard the alarm. He remembered his terrified wife screaming, they're in the house. He testified. Then I heard people running through the house yelling, we've got guns. We're here to rob you. He recounted how two men burst into his bedroom and intercepted him as he ran toward the gun closet. He was ordered back to the middle of the room. Jack said that he saw Karen sitting on the side of the bed. She could not move. She was totally petrified. And then they were ordered to lay on the ground. Quote, I can recall laying on the ground thinking, God, just give me the power to get off this floor and defend ourselves. I remember hearing, cut him here. Then I remember the whole world turning black. I remember him beating me and beating me and beating me until I didn't remember any more.
2: After coming to, Jack remembered trying to lift his wife from the floor. He said he knew then that she was either dead or dying, and all he could remember was the cold rage that just washed over him. He said he had blood all over his face, and when he used his hand to wipe the blood off, he got his thumb caught in his neck.
1: I read that. That is brutal.
2: During his testimony, Jack was asked, would you recommend Christy get the death penalty? He quietly replied, yes, sir. That's what she gave
1: Karen. Can you imagine your own father saying that? That's so brutal.
2: At this point, Kath, I assume he had disassociated with his daughter. I thought the same thing. It was also revealed at trial that less than an hour after Jack Coslow stumbled to his neighbor's house pleading for help, Christy answered a phone call from her boyfriend and asked him if her father and stepmother were dead.
1: Kath, this is so crazy. I read something from the judge when he was retired. It was the judge who heard this case. And he basically said, these three kids put together in this situation were almost like the perfect storm. He said, if you would have taken any one of them out and inserted a different friend, he said this would not have happened. And so the vibe you get when you read about this case is that Christy was extremely strong in personality and hurt and resentful. Jeffrey Dillingham was extremely money motivated. And then Brian Salter was supposedly the one who was like the weak link, like he was the most malleable. And apparently he was completely infatuated that he was dating Christy Coslow.
2: In closing arguments, the state prosecutor, Alan Levy, called Christy Coslow a woman consumed by hate who referred to her stepmother as Step Monster. The defense attorney, Mark Daniel, dismissed the notion that his client had masterminded the plot, arguing that Christy did not, quote, have the intellect or maturity to organize a rock fight.
1: Ooh.
2: <laughs> I think it's a really weird, like, what's a rock
1: <laughs> fight? <laughs> I, I can't even imagine something more insulting. Yeah. <laughs>
2: After three hours of deliberation, on June 29, 1994, the jury returned with a verdict guilty. During the penalty phase, the prosecution called no witnesses. The defense put on Norma Sue Cook, a Tarrant County jail supervisor who described Christie as an excellent inmate and one of the most respectful and considerate people I've ever known. Christie's mother took the stand and sobbing, begged that her daughter's life be spared. The next day, Christie was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 35 years.
1: After numerous unsuccessful appeals, Jeffrey Dillingham, age 27, was executed by lethal injection on November 1, 2000 in Huntsville, Texas. According to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Dillingham gave a last statement and said a prayer. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm just going to pull out some excerpts. He said, I would just like to apologize to the victim's family for what I did. I take full responsibility for that poor woman's death, for the pain and suffering inflicted on Mr. Coslow. Father, I want to thank you for all the beautiful people you put in my life. I could not have asked for two greater parents than you gave me. I thank you for all the things you have done in my life, for the ways that you have opened my eyes, softened my heart. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for getting me off death row and for bringing me home out of prison. Jeffrey Dillingham then winked at his parents while the lethal dose was administered. He was pronounced dead at 6.28 p.m. Both Christy Coslow and Brian Salter will be eligible for parole in 2027.
2: Jack Coslow did not attend the execution of Jeffrey Dillingham. Jack sold the house in Rivercrest where his wife Karen was killed. He still bears a scar on his throat from the night he was attacked. We do not know if he is still married, but we do know that he remarried after Karen's murder and was living at the time in Fort Worth. Currently, he is the mayor pro tem of Westover Hills, Texas, which is about 10 minutes away from his former home in Fort Worth.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
2: We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with all of your friends and family about us. If you haven't left a review, please do. And if you aren't following us yet, we're at Killer Destinations Podcast
1: on all the socials.